Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. On the show this week, for all some people try to reassure themselves that size really isn't the be-all and end-all. When it comes to micro-pension parts, there really is such a thing as too small to be of any use. It's a story as old as auto-enrollment itself. The proliferation of small parts is reaching silly proportions, and their exponential growth seems to be outstripping the ability of legislators to correct the problem. Uh, we'll assess what options we have. Next up, one of the first stories I worked on when I started here was the imminent arrival of commercial consolidators. And now, two years later, the arrival of commercial consolidators is still imminent. Uh, Clara is so far the only commercial consolidator to get the regulator's seal of approval. And it's announced it plans to announce its first transaction in Q3 of this year. We will assess the state of that market and ask how big a development this really is. And then finally, LGPS funds are in the process of completing their McLeod data cleansing exercises, but it transpires some employers are struggling to provide them with the necessary information. So will there be trouble ahead? It's McLeod, so the answer is yes, but we'll ask our experts anyway. I'm Benjamin Mercer, I'm a senior reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Tom McPhail, Director of Public Affairs at the Lancat, and by Henry Tapper, Executive Chair at Age Wage. And thank you both very much for joining me. Beginning uh, with the perennial small parts problem, uh, the issue I'm sure is familiar to our listeners by now, the Department for Work and Pensions has estimated there could be as many as 50 million deferred parts by 2050, uh, with additional research by our own magazine suggesting that the average size of a pension pot in a master trust is only worth around £4,000. With inflation at its current rate, that figure will be zero by the time I finish this sentence. And now it is. Uh, the alarming number of pots with only £100 in them are vulnerable to administrative and other costs, and experts we spoke to uh, warned that legislative changes such as the banning of flat fees do not go anywhere near far enough to solve the small pots conundrum. And Tom, I think we'll kick off with you on this one. It is as old as auto-enrollment itself, isn't it? Um, we've had some legislation making moves towards solving it. But I mean, am I right in characterising the general impression as being the legislation is not enough? Yeah, so I think I think we were seduced by the, the genius and the magic and the fairy dust of auto-enrollment. And it was a brilliant solution to a particular problem we faced back in the early 2000s. I think it's interesting to look back and think that at the time, the mantra was just don't talk to the members, don't engage with the members. The more you talk to them, the less successful auto-enrollment will be. And that may have been true at the time. But what we failed to do was understand that in putting people into workplace pensions, you needed to, to establish a bit of a relationship between that individual and the pension. So what happens is they leave their job and the pension gets left behind and the pension company probably hasn't got that individual's personal email address. And so that connection gets lost. And so we end up with these small pots and it definitely is a problem. And it costs money to run a pension pot, I don't know, 10 to 20 pounds a year. So this, this adds up. The providers are all running these pots at a loss. It does eat away at their capacity to provide value for money right across the piece. So we need a solution. I think it's the master trusts that are really feeling the pain on this. And you could argue they put themselves in this place. They knew what they signed up for. They went and hoovered up all this business and now they're paying the price for it. But we still need a solution for it, both for the members and for the efficiency of the industry. I think where we're at now, there's been lots of work done around this and talk of trials and concerns about trustees' fiduciary duties. I think where we've ended up is we're going to need legislation to fix it. And it's just a question of how we position that and when that might happen. Yeah, the, the pensions minister was clear he wanted this to be an industry solution. Um, but the industry solution has floundered. Uh, it's, it's been beached by 
a problem which wasn't foreseen, which is the absolute mess HMT has made of the normal, I'm sorry, the minimum retirement age, what are known as protected ages. What this has meant is that some master trusts, like People's Pension, have got protected retirement ages of 55 and others haven't. And the ones that have are saying, we want you to consolidate to us and we're not going to release our people to you if you've got a worse minimum retirement age. The whole process has therefore ground to a halt as we get a sort of master trust war uh, with uh, lots of preening of feathers. Um, but of course, the consumer is the big loser in this. And even if the solution to that presented itself You've still got the problem that outside the master trust, when you look at contract-based pensions, it's just currently not legally possible to move an individual's pot without their consent. So you're going to need some kind of legislative workaround on that, whatever else happens. And, and yeah. you know, we need a solution that works right across the spectrum of DC pensions, not just... Absolutely. I know, Tom, but you've, you've argued for a long time there should be some kind of hub which allows uh, money to transfer to any provider at the member's insistence. And this is an interesting one because members don't get a choice on where their money goes. And we've had some interesting conversations this week between unions and the likes of Uber and now pensions about just what choice means. Uh, you've got 46% of Uber drivers are Muslim. There isn't a Sharia option in the now pensions arsenal. And therefore, there might well be litigation. There's an interesting backstory to this, which we haven't got time to go into, but which I'm sure you'll be able to read on my blog. I think is critical, as Tom says, is that we get to a industry-wide consensus on how to sort this problem out. My own view is that we need some kind of government intervention, as Tom has said, which will mean somebody putting some legislation down, almost certainly the DWP, to make sure we have some kind of master pot solution where pot in one way or other follows member from place to place. So obviously that would be fantastic to see, but I suppose the second question is how likely is it that we will see it given the number of other pieces of pensions legislation and just general legislative backlog that they have going on at the moment? Having said what you would like to see, do either of you think you will actually see it? And uh, Temri, I'll start with you on this one. Not in this parliamentary term. Short and sweet, uh, Tom. I'm hesitant to to say anything in 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 contradiction of Henry's such a confident assertion from Mr. Tapper. There, um, I you know I think I think there's a reasonable chance we will get a pensions bill before the end of this Parliament. Whether there's room in it for anything on small pot consolidation is, I think, it's certainly very unlikely. And Guy Alperman, the DWP, they know this is a problem. It's it's not like they're they're blind to this. They've had policy people looking at it, working on it. So it is on the table. It's just they're not definitely not going to legislate until the industry works out what the best solution is. And they can go to the DWP and say, this is what you need to do. And it feels like we're still a way off getting that. And without that, well, why would you expect the DWP to act on it? And even when we do, the DWP may look at what the industry wants and says, no, we can't do that. What else have you got? Yeah, there's there's a couple of turns on the merry-go-round to come, yes, I think. It really is the bindweed of auto-enrolments. And uh, the longer that you allow that bindweed to stay in the ground, the worse the problem gets. So the sooner the better, but uh, nevertheless, I think we'll have to wait and see for that one, won't we? 
Excellent. Um, in that case, I think we'll move on to the second topic of the day, which is super funds. Um, Clara has announced, has mentioned that it will probably announce its first transaction in Q3 of this year, marking the end of the long beginning for commercial consolidators and the debut of a new endgame option for weak sponsors. Clara is as yet the only consolidator to have been cleared by the regulator with the other high profile name, the pension super fund, still lost somewhere in TPR's big garden maze of red tape. Adam Sarin, Clara's outgoing chief executive, says there is a strong appetite for consolidation. A traditional insurer's complaints about regulatory arbitrage suggest they fear the same. But what use is an appetite if there aren't any restaurants open to satiate it? Is the question we will open with. And um, Tom, I will begin with you on this one. We have Clara probably announcing. Adam Sarin, as I've mentioned, says that there is a strong appetite for it. Do you think there is a strong appetite for it? And if so, will there be capacity in the market to meet that appetite? Uh, I certainly think the I think the need is there. I think you know we've still got too many suboptimal, really not viable in the long term, DB pensions. Uh, we need consolidation. I think this looks like a a sensible solution to that. I can understand TPR's hesitancy to sign off on anything that might come back to bite them. So you know I understand the regulatory risk that they face and the accountability risk they face in approving any scheme like this. So I get why they are being slow to rubber stamp anything like this. At the same time, we need to move forward from where we are. There are far too many pension schemes in the UK. We need fewer, bigger pension schemes, and this would be a good step in that direction. So yes, it feels like the appetite is there, and delivering efficiency and value for money and better governance is the prize at the end of all of this. Yeah, I've got to worry about this. Uh, The Treasury have been doing their level best to stop super funds from happening since day one. And they've done a pretty good job about it so far with super funds still to get its uh, approval. Um, Eddie Trull, if he had hair, pulling it out. We've seen regime change. We've had the CEOs of both Clara and Superfund leaving recently. And we've had a whole new bunch put in of the usual suspects. Enter um, Simon True from the Phoenix Group, a good insurance man. Enter Michael Clark, super fund. Enter Margaret Snowden, pension regulator, trying to sort of show that these super funds aren't these kind of entrepreneurial beasts, but they're actually good, solid citizens, so that the Treasury says, OK, they're respectable and like the insurers. The ABI, of course, putting up a pretty good rearguard action saying we don't want super funds. Stop them any way you can. And uh, so far, they, they seem to be winning that argument. My personal belief is that the Treasury are trying to relax the rules on solvency. If they do, the regulatory arbitrage, which super funds would have enjoyed, will slowly disappear. The two things will come together and we'll find that the need for super funds has been obviated by the relaxations in solvency. And everyone will have to breathe a sigh of relief if they're in the Treasury or gnash their teeth if they're in the DWP and the world will go on very much as it did before. So my, my view is a lot of noise over nothing. Okay, that's the point we haven't actually considered before, I don't think. So just to recapitulate, the, the view is that, say, say reforming solvency too and relaxing uh, solvency laws would make all of the work that the Superfund and Clara have done essentially redundant because there would not no longer be any need for them. Is that is that? Yeah, I mean, the PPF announced 111% solvency rates on UK pensions, the highest it's ever been. Yeah, we do not have insolvent pensions as we did 
two, three, five years ago. That's partly a function of the recovery of, of um, yield and bonds. It's partly a function of the resilience of, the, uh, of, of what remains of the, um, of the equity uh, portion that's invested in these occupational pension schemes. But mostly it's because of the huge deficit contributions which have been being pumped into these DB schemes by employers, much to the detriment, I might say, of the employer's capacity to invest in bring, bouncing back Britain. Um, so what we've had actually is a terrible depletion, if you like, of our economic powerhouse, our private sector pension schemes to fund these DB pension schemes. But they've got there. And, and frankly, I think part of the problem that super funds are going to have is that their demand for their services will diminish over the next 12 to 24 months, making them a little bit like the beached whale that we mentioned earlier. Do you think, Henry, do you think that's just a function of where the markets are at today? Or do you think you, know, you talk as if this, is, this has just gone now? Well, I mean, I can't see bond yields falling. I, I can only see interest rates going up, and I can only therefore see solvency rates within pension schemes improving. And with the amount of LDI that's in, in the schemes themselves, with the amount of leverage which the schemes have got to these improvements in bond yields, I think that most pension schemes will find themselves back into a, a situation where they can actually either be bought out or can continue on paying pensions if, if they have a mind to do so. So the need, if you like, for these super funds is, is reducing, Tom. So, so uh, based on, on the story we've read, obviously, one well, Clara's proposition, uh, I can speak from what they, they told us, um, the pension super fund is slightly different, but Clara's proposition is it's particularly appealing to schemes that have weak sponsors, um, but also potentially companies that are looking for corporate restructurings, which can get a, a better deal if they manage mm-hmm. to spin off their pension scheme. Cognizant of what you said about uh, the fact that pension scheme solvency is generally on the up, as far as I'm aware, the question of weak sponsors would be a slightly different one, wouldn't it? And as we move out of coronavirus, it will be an ongoing one. Is that something that, that will still weigh in super funds' favour, or has that been counterbalanced by the kind of things you just set out? Yeah, I, I still think that most schemes will want to jettison their DB liabilities if they can do, because it's stopping them doing the things they want to do, like pay dividends and invest and in, 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 in staff and all that stuff. Which and they, and, they and put decent contributions into the staff's DC pensions. Oh, and such a good point, Tom. And properly fund DC pensions. Yeah. So I think it's still going to happen. Just the question is, you know, who's going to do it? Clara is about ferrying people to the super funds and, and basically taking the schemes off their hands until the insurance companies are ready for them. Um, but if the if the schemes get to a point where they're ready to go to buy out quicker, then do we really need Clara? That That's the problem for Clara. And it's a problem for super funds if it ever gets approved. But great point, Tom. How can we have 3% employer contributions against a small amount of people's wages uh, for you know auto-enrollment, but see the typical contribution from the employer into a DB scheme of 25 30%? It just doesn't make sense. Maybe we should get Clara on to tell us what they think about what Henry's just said. Maybe we should. I'm sure they'll be writing in after the podcast. But um, I was just thinking, you're saying, you're talking about pulling your hair out over the difficulty of getting things through Treasury and the Department for Work and Pensions. I am trying to imagine how much hair will be pulled out if they go through all of that only to find out that there's no point anymore. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't envy the people doing all the work over there. Tom, any closing thoughts on on what you've heard and on the proposition for super? No, I can't. I can't add to what Henry said there. I think that was a really really interesting uh, uh, assessment. So I think we should move on. Definitely, no, absolutely. In which case, we we shall move on to McLeod and the local government pension scheme. 
though local, uh, most local government pension scheme funds have requested the information necessary for them to complete their various data exercises as part of the McLeod remedy, many administering authorities are reporting trouble when it comes to actually receiving that information. And there have been calls for more government guidance on how to deal with recalcitrant employers and also how to deal with those that just don't exist anymore. As if the combined burdens of GMPs, dashboards, the Goodwin ruling, the regulators' new single code of practice were not enough to be going on with, Leicestershire County Council has warned in March that the Public Sector Pensions and Judicial Offices Bill, which is currently going through Parliament, could in fact widen the scope of members affected by the McLeod verdict and so make an already difficult job that much more difficult. Will we ever see the end of it? And Tom, I will begin with you um, on this one. I don't know which part of that you want to well, take. I think, but, uh, I think there's, there's a couple of things that strike me about that. One is everything you've described means more costs for the sponsoring employer because they're the ones who ultimately pay for this. So where's the money going to come from? It has to come from the employers. And when we're talking about public sector employers, particularly with the spring statement we heard, you know, in a lot of cases, they're not flush with cash at the moment. They've got to find some money for that within their budgets. And so that, I think that's a consideration. I think there's also just the capacity to do the work at the moment. Are the skilled individuals available across the UK pensions community to do all of this at the moment? You know, it doesn't matter. I think to some extent how much money you throw at it, you just can't, you need bodies as well. You need people who understand what they're doing. And I think that's a concern. And then the final point I'd make is I'm, I'm really struck. You mentioned dashboards there. You know, we're already hearing noises from the industry saying, could we slow down a bit on dashboard implementation? Uh, we're struggling a bit with our data cleansing. And uh, I, I find this ironic given that dashboards have been looming over the horizon for a good 10 years now. And for at least three years now, we've had the pensions minister standing up in conferences saying, this is coming. Put your house in order get ready for it and i'm pretty confident that a lot of these schemes were were in a kind of uh, yeah but but next week you know we've got other things to do this week so 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 now all of a sudden we've got a data problem and it's like well what have you been doing yeah i would add to what thomas just said which is that there is a problem to do with spurious certainty about the dashboard even if you are in a db scheme there is no certainty about what pension you're going to pick up in five or 10 years' time. And whether you've got an extra bit from McLeod or not, that certainty is not going to be improved by knowing what the McLeod extra is going to be. You're still going to be subject to inflation issues. Uh, and of course, whether or not you're continuing to build up and accrue pensions makes is the major factor in how much LGPS pension you get. So I personally think it is enough for people who are in the LGPS to know that they're in the LGPS. And they are not dashboard critical, these people. Their LGPS benefits are known to them. The people who need the dashboard are the people who don't know if they've got benefits. The are £20 billion worth of lost pot people. They're the ones who are. And we can't delay dashboards to deal with the issues which are pretty small, of LGPS members and greater certainty uh, and stop people who have literally got no idea where their pensions are uh, from getting that idea by allowing them access to a pensions to a dashboard which finds them their pensions and tells them what their pension pots are worth. 
Yeah, no, I'd concur with that. And I think if it's in order of priorities, you know, sort sort the McLeod stuff out that needs doing all the other stuff, GMP, you know, deal, deal with that because you need to deal with that. And for those DB pensions that are struggling, we'll kind of we'll come back around on the dashboard stuff. Yeah, I, I think I mean, don't don't underestimate just how tough it is to run an LGPS pension scheme because you've got hundreds of employers. And when you look at who those employers are, I mean, they're, they're like village councils and stuff like that. You know, parish councils employ a town clerk or a village clerk, you know, something like that. And they're in the in the pension scheme. They might be the only one. Yeah, and getting all this information about their benefits in one place doing all the work that's required is a heck of an undertaking. It's a real nightmare. I'm not in any way downgrading the size of the task, which is there. And I agree entirely with what Tom said, but there isn't a lot of resource in local government. And if truth be known, the people who pay for this resource are the council taxpayers. They're the people who shoulder the vast majority of the cost of the LGPS. The words data cleansing exercise and parish council don't really belong in the same book. Round, rounding off on, um, on on this theme, as far as I, as I understood it, the priority for dashboards or the, the approach taken to dashboards has been to say we want to get as many people on board quickly. So the first priorities are the larger schemes and then the large public sector schemes as well. And some, I think it was a sizable part of the industry response to the consultation was in favour in theory of getting public sector pensions on the dashboard as quickly as is possible. Obviously, that's been undermined because you have the problem with the McLeod ruling, for instance, being to provide the two sets of pension benefit estimates based on the deferred choice underpin, which is an extra layer of data complexity on top of that. But the general approach has still been to get the big people on first. Would you say then that there is actually a superior argument for a very res- a relatively restricted rollout of dashboards to smaller schemes or smaller parts of members first, and then getting some of the bigger public sector schemes on later once the McLeod situation has, if it ever will be resolved. I mean, is that a fair well, I, I, I think there's a very strong argument that what you need is a minimum viable product. That's what you call any fintech project of this nature. Yeah, you get it to an MVP, get the dashboard availability point to the earliest you could you possibly do it without destroying the credibility of a dashboard and go. Now, if, if LGPS say we don't want to be part of that minimum viable product, so be it. Don't let 100% perfection be the enemy of good. Good is, as I said before, being able to find your pensions and know what they are and be able to do something about the very urgent need which private sector people have got. And let, let's not forget that the public sector people are hugely privileged relative to private sector people in having open accrual to DB. Yeah, and I think... Uh, I absolutely agree with what Henry said there. And a solution is to say, well, look, for those, for all those public sector schemes, local government schemes, fine. Okay, you're struggling a bit at the moment. Can you at least put a marker down that says Henry's got some entitlement? And when, when Henry tries to look at what it is, it's a blank page. But at least Henry knows he's got some entitlement. So you could go halfway and at least just put the memberships on there and then worry about things like the benefit projections further down the line. Sounds sensible to me. I suppose the final question on the, on this theme, given that we, we have ended up talking about dashboards, is um, do you think that we will actually see them arrive by the stated date, given all we've just discussed, or are more delays forthcoming? Henry, I'll start with you on this one. Well, I mean, the PLSA have also made their statement that they think that 2023 is ambitious. and uh, We've got 2025 in the plan as the sort of business as usual date, 
I made a bet with a pensions minister in 2019 that we wouldn't get dashboards up and running and, and business as usual by the time in which I uh, am likely to retire, which is 2028. And I think I may still win that battle. Yeah, I may win that bet. I hope I don't. But the worry is that we get slippage. Uh, it's a major undertaking, etc. That said, I think Chris Curry's doing a pretty good job of trying to keep promises being made. And I'm quite sure that Guy Opperman is not for any further slippage. Uh, but whether you can actually get the horse to water and make it drink is another matter. And uh, I, I'd be interested in Tom's views on how likely the PLSA lot are to actually deliver um, the sort of information. Needed. I think it's re- really good points, Henry. I think there will be a lot of resistance to any slippage on the timetable and where you might get a bit of a fudge is you'll end up with something a bit like one of those sort of old Wild West Western movie sets where, you know, you've got the the one horse town and the shop fronts and, you know, from the front, it looks like everything's there. But when you go around the back, it's just some structs of wood propping up a propping up a frontage. And we, we might get a bit of that. So um, I agree. I think Chris has been doing a fantastic job. I think there will be a lot of pressure on the particularly on the DC providers to deliver, um, you know, we We've got the state pension, we've got the public sector pensions. There may be some slippage around the quality of the information, for example, the projections of, of benefits. But I'm going to hold out hope that actually it sticks to its schedule, even if there's a bit of a fudge around the quality of what's delivered. I, I would only say that the dashboard for me is about allowing ordinary people to be able to work out what their retirement standard of living is likely to be. So the key aspects for them is to know what they're going to get from the states, the total amount they've got in private pots, and to start doing some planning around that. Beware of spurious accuracy. That's that's a good note on which to end the principal part of the programme. There is sometimes, at least I think I mentioned in our invitation, we try to close with this always a pensions angle segment. Sometimes there isn't always a pensions angle, but otherwise there is always a pensions angle. I don't suppose either of you have spotted anything for us this week. I've spotted something in your own magazine, Ben. You have a fabulous story running about the Uber versus now pensions Sharia people, right? The Sharia, 46% of people in Uber are Muslims, and they haven't got a Sharia option because they're in now pensions. Uh, And Adrian Boulding, my good friend, has promised that we will have a Sharia fund in now by the end of the spring or late summer, early summer or whatever. In your 2013 article on now pensions, Morton Nielsen, the then CEO, said, we're about to deliver a Sharia pensions. And it watched this space. And Nigel Waterson, the CEO, said, oh, no, we're not. If you want a Sharia fund, go to Nest. So this is a nine-year-old problem for now. Now, even in the Neanderthal world of master trust, to get yourself a Sharia fund in nine years doesn't seem to be a particular problem. So what is going on now and why haven't they got a Sharia fund after nine years? I was actually just trying to pull up that story to see if they'd given us a comment. Uh, Read henrytapper.com for the full story. <laughs> we can, <laughs> in which case, we'll close at the plug. Um, fantastic. <laughs> Uh, I think that that does bring us to the close of the program. So uh, thank you very much to Tom and to uh, Henry for joining us today. Thank you for our listeners for listening to us. We will be back in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.